Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. My name is Matthew Halstead. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is all about engaging the Bible. While every episode is different, the goal is always the same. Learn more about scripture and how to interpret it. So sit back, grab your favorite beverage, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Bible Unmuted. So in the last episode, I mentioned how there were three common mistakes that people tend to make when they read Revelation. And uh, this episode today is going to continue that conversation. So if you haven't had a chance yet to listen to part one, you'll want to go ahead and do that before you listen to today's discussion, which is part two of that. So um, yeah, go back and listen to that. But just as a recap, uh, just to kind of jog our memories a little bit, um, in the last episode, I mentioned how sometimes readers forget that Revelation is actually a letter. So that's like the first common mistake, I think, that people make when they read Revelation. Um, the, the fact is, it is a letter. Um, it, Revelation is not a systematic theology. It was never intended to offer like an exhaustive treatment or a play-by-play account of all things eschatology. That's something I mentioned in the last episode, right? Um, and, and the fact is that Revelation is a letter written to the churches of Asia, which was a province of the Roman Empire in the first century. And it was specifically addressed to seven churches within that province, uh, like m- most notably like uh, uh, the church at Ephesus, which Ephesus was one of the largest uh, cities within the Roman Empire at that time. And uh, anyway, um, other cities, of course, are mentioned to uh, very important cities such as Smyrna, Pergamum and Thyatira, you know, just to name a few of them. Um, They were all important in their own right. But all this to say, these cities were most likely singled out because of their political and their religious significance in the culture of Asia. And the author of Revelation, John, you know, he definitely intended for his letter to circulate, not just among those seven churches, but also among all the Asian churches. Um, And as we know, the letter has had a good shelf life. It's been circulating across the globe for like, Goodness, 2,000 years now. Um, but yeah, so um, I, I guess I, just 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 remember that, um, that that the fact that it's a letter is so important to remember. You, you've got to have that down. If you don't, then you might uh, get your interpretations uh, on, off the wrong foot. But okay, so I also talked about how knowing Revelation is a letter can help you understand it. Um, so just as, as kind of a... Uh, more of a recap on that. Let me, let me let me go down that road just a little bit further. And I'm reminded here of of Craig Keener's comment in his Revelation uh, Revelation commentary, which I highly recommend that you go go get. Um, he makes this comment that he says Revelation, you know, because it was a letter, it must have been discernible and understandable to its original audience. And this is something Craig talks about quite often. Uh, but you can find some of that com- those comments in his commentary as well. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's a good point to consider. I mean, if Revelation was a letter, it must have been discernible and understandable to its original audience. And what this means is that behind and, and beneath all of the cryptic and mysterious language, the signs and the symbols that Revelation offers its readers behind all that, Revelation must have made some sense to its first century audience. And, and I mean, John even says that, uh, that he wants his readers to keep and obey what he writes in Revelation. Okay, well, that, that raises a question. How could the first century audience have kept and obeyed Revelation's message 
if if they weren't able to understand it in the first place. I mean, they couldn't, okay? So this observation, I think, is helpful for us today. As we search for Revelation's meaning for our own world, we can start by seeing what it meant for the first century world. And as a first century letter, after all, it must have had meaning for the first century audience. And by becoming familiar with that meaning, we can find the text meaningful today. And just as a side note here, that's how hermeneutics works. The biblical text can have multiple layers of meaning, uh, multiple layers of meanings. And and I actually talk about this in my my new book on eschatology, which it it won't be released until sometime early uh, 2024 with Lexham Press. But anyway, uh, I mentioned some of that in in that book. So uh, you can find some of that there when the book is released. But but anyway, as we look into the, the layers of meaning a text might have, I think it's helpful to become familiar with how the original audience found it meaningful for their time. Okay, so a biblical text has its own horizon of understanding. It's its own context, a situation, right? And modern readers also have their own horizon of understanding. So you have two horizons here. You have the horizon of the text and the horizon of the modern reader. And I think what we want to do as modern readers is to be aware of our own horizons, to be aware of our own assumptions as as we seek to dialogue with the text's original horizons and with the text's Uh, original assumptions. And one way you can keep your own modern assumptions in check is by letting them come face to face with ancient assumptions, okay? Because sometimes our assumptions are different and distinct, and that's okay. We just need to be aware of them so that our modern assumptions don't smother the text's ancient assumptions. Okay, so the goal, I guess you you could say, is, is for both horizons, the text's horizon and the reader's horizon, to fuse together into fresh understanding and application in our lives today. This is something that the great hermeneutic theorist uh, Hans Georg Gadamer uh, mentioned in his book, Truth and Method. Um, anyway, uh, side note on that. Um, so while, while, while we don't read, I'm sorry, while, while we don't live in the Roman Empire, we do live in a world that needs the critique and the message of Revelation, okay? We still need its message in the modern world. And by recognizing Revelation that it's a letter, I think we're forced to dive deep into the context of Revelation and the historical situation of Revelation to see how its message was fleshed out then. And I think this will give us some good theological grammar for speaking to our own world today. Again, there's lots more to say on this topic, and and no doubt in the future I'll be chatting a lot more about the hermeneutic and the interpretive relationship between an original ancient text and modern context. I'll, I'll have more to say about that in the days ahead. Um, in the meantime, though, if if you are interested in that topic, if you're a hermeneutic nerd like I am, I did write a book called Paul and the Meaning of Scripture, which essentially is an in-depth explanation of how I think hermeneutics works and how interpretation, how, how it works, okay? Um, and so what I do is I use Paul's letter to the Romans as a case study of sorts for how uh, interpret, uh, in, interpretation plays out and how readers find under, find the understanding that they do in texts. Um, so the first section of my book is all about hermeneutic theory. And the second part is all about Paul's interpretations of the Old Testament in Romans. Um, so anyway, check that out if you're an interpretation nerd. Um, um, yeah, or, 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 just, or just check the book out if you need something to help you fall asleep at night. It works for that too. <laughs> okay, enough of that. Um, but yeah, anyway, go back, check out last week's episode, and I'll, in that episode, I give some examples 
for how knowing Revelation as a letter helps you interpret it, okay? So in today's episode, we're going to chat about two other mistakes that people make when reading Revelation. And these two things are this. Um, first, a lot of people forget that Revelation is an apocalyptic text, okay? And along with this, they aren't quite sure how to read an apocalypse. Maybe they don't know what an apocalypse even is. So we're going to talk about that today. The other third mistake that people make um, is that a lot of people, they're, they're not sufficiently familiar with, with what biblical prophecy is all about. So Revelation calls itself a prophecy, and, and so it's, it's a prophetic book. But because we tend to be confused about how biblical prophecy works, we tend to be confused with how, with how to read a prophetic book like Revelation. Before I start discussing apocalyptic and prophetic stuff, I want to share a cool announcement. Next week, I'll be interviewing Dr. Scott McKnight about his new book on Revelation. It's called Revelation for the Rest of Us, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. This book was published and released by Zondervan in February of this year, so it's like hot off the press. At any rate, I look forward to chatting with Scott about his new book, so be on the lookout for that interview. Okay, so let's talk about apocalypse. Scholars often describe Revelation as being a text characterized by multiple genres. So for example, Revelation is part of the epistolary genre. It's an epistolary text, a a letter, right? It's an epistle. But it's also part of 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 the prophetic genre. And so I'll chat more about that in a moment. But but let's let's jump to the third genre that Revelation is often said to be. Uh, Revelation is an apocalyptic writing. It's an apocalyptic text. And scholars typically talk about how apocalypse is a genre of literature. So it's a type of writing. Okay? And Revelation is considered to be a, a, a part of that genre too. And so to, to understand Revelation's message, I mean, to interpret it rightly... I think modern readers need to learn a thing or two about the characteristics of the apocalyptic genre. And before I say more about that, I'd like to talk about the word itself, apocalypse, which I, I, which I think is often misunderstood today. So the English word apocalypse is almost always used in modern contexts as being about disaster. So, for example, we say things like, the end of the world will be apocalyptic. And what we mean by that is that The end of the world will be destructive. And so the word apocalypse has basically come to mean, or it's basically become a synonym for disaster or destruction or cosmic upheaval or something. Something to that effect. But that wasn't the original meaning of the word. Our English word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. And that word simply means to uncover something or to disclose something, or to unveil something. It's often translated in modern Bible versions as to reveal, or simply revelation. In fact, that's why revelation is called revelation. The very first word of the text of revelation is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Or as modern translations put it, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The entire letter of Revelation is about the unveiling or the revealing 
of the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ in the cosmos. And this unveiling has a double meaning. It is the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ, and it is the revelation that is Jesus Christ. And I think that's what the opening line of Revelation 1-1 is all about. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It means the revelation that comes from Jesus and the revelation that is Jesus. And the basic idea is that John's original readers needed reminding that what they see in the physical realm does not represent what is actually true of reality when they take it as a whole. Okay, when you take reality as a whole, you get the full truth. And only an apocalypse can give you the reality of the entire, the entire cosmos, okay? So the first church, uh, the first century church, they lived under the reign of Roman emperors. You know, think of Nero or Domitian. You know, these are irrational actors who were very destructive and, and quite evil. And if the early church wasn't careful, then they might be tempted to despair. They might be tempted to give up hope. All they could see was how evil was getting its way. All they could see was the twisted rule of Rome. But what Revelation reveals is that there's actually more to the story. Rome does not have the final say. The eternal city of Rome was not contrary to popular opinion at the time. It was not going to last forever. The Roman Empire was but a small footnote in the annals of world history. Rome would be judged, and a new city, the New Jerusalem, would take its place. The New Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God and humans, that is the eternal city, not Rome. So this is the truth that Revelation reveals. That message would be, no doubt, a comfort. It would be an immense comfort to the churches. You know, it, it would have told them that their troubles would come to an end. And, and it would also, um, uh, it, yeah, it would just give them tons of hope and, and it would give them strength to, to live their lives. Revelation acted as a sort of lens through which the church ought to interpret their reality. And so when they looked at, say, the Roman imperial system, what they should really see is a monster empowered by a serpent, Satan, who would be destroyed by the lamb who was slain. Revelation offered the church a fresh way of seeing reality. As an apocalypse, it helped them see themselves as part of God's ruling people. See, see, they, the early Christians, and like all Christians today, we are followers of the Lamb, and we will rule and reign with God. And, and as a side note here, I mean, for those of you who are familiar with Mike Heiser, think of the Divine Council stuff at this point. If you're not familiar with Mike's teaching on the Divine Council, you should really go do some research on that and, and catch up on the reading. I, I really think Mike has left us a great treasure of teaching on that topic. So go check out his material at Awakening School of Theology. Go check out his website and, and go do some reading. Go, go get the book, The Unseen Realm, and all that stuff. It's really, really helpful material. Okay, um, so, so in, in one of um, David De Silva's books, he makes a comment that I think is actually super helpful here. And it's super helpful for those who want to study Revelation to keep in mind. In his book, I think it's in uh, his book, Unholy Allegiances. In that book, he says something like this. He says, um, Revelation does not require an interpretive key to unlock its message. To the contrary, Revelation is the, is the interpretive key to unlock the meaning of the world around us. And that's not exactly like a word-for-word -word quote, but it's a close paraphrase from memory. At any rate, I, th I do think De Silva is spot on here. Revelation, as an apocalypse, it's intended to shed light upon the world. 
It's help. It's to help. It's it's. It was given to us to help us interpret the world rightly, to help us to understand it. And I think that's one thing that apocalyptic writings do. They allow you to see, to peel back, and look beyond the seen realm and into the unseen realm, as Mike would put it, right? So, okay, I want to talk a little bit more about the apocalyptic genre itself. So going back to David De Silva, this time I'm looking at his book, uh, Discovering Revelation, which you should pick up. It was published in 2021. And in that book, he offers a pretty good summary, good overview of apocalyptic uh, as a literary genre. So I'm just going to read from uh, that book, uh, looking at page 25 here. And so, yeah, just follow along. Listen to what uh, David says about apocalyptic genre. Quote, scholars now use the term apocalypse to refer to the larger body of texts that contain such narratives of divine mysteries disclosed through ecstatic experiences as a literary genre. In one sense, therefore, reading Revelation uh, chapter 1 verse 1 as an announcement of the book's literary genre is anachronistic. In another sense, however, as these texts all represent literary narrations of the same kind of, of allegedly lived experience, the revelation of heavenly mysteries through visions, conversations with supernatural beings, and the like, the use of the term to denote a literary genre is quite apt. In other words, he's saying, yeah, I mean, it's, it's okay to call revelation an apocalyptic text. Okay, he, he, he continues. He says, other texts that fit in this pattern include First Enoch, the Testament of Levi, Fourth Ezra, Second Baruch, and the Apocalypse of Abraham. Though in one respect, these are unlike Revelation in that they are written from the perspective and in the voice of a revered figure of sacred history, whereas John writes from his own perspective and in his own voice. He goes on and he adds, quote, Apocalypses share an interest in what is going on in the unseen realms of God and of the forces of evil and chaos that provide the cosmic backdrop for their authors and audiences' experiences in the visible world. They also share an interest in the past history and the future events that frame the present moment and interpret its challenges and choices. They play the reader's lived situation within the context of a bigger picture of time and space that provides the interpretive framework for the audience's everyday realities and responses to those realities. The narrative form of apocalypses in general and of revelation in particular allows hearers and readers to experience vicariously the ecstatic, the, the ecstatic revelatory experience of the prophet author, an experience that both legitimates the message as coming from beyond and changes the hearers and readers' perspectives on and responses to their situation in the light of the same. And here he draws a little bit from On's commentary on Revelation. Um, anyway, yeah, I think that's a good good summary of the situation. Um, that Revelation is actually part of a larger collection, or uh, I'm sorry, not a larger collection, but um, is part of a, a of a type of ancient text that we now call apocalyptic. Okay, and so yeah. Anyway, uh, you might want to rewind and go back and re-listen to that summary, but it's it's an excellent summary, and and uh, and I I highly recommend this book. And and I just I read that from again Discovering Revelation by David De Silva. Um, published um, 2021, and um, highly recommend you go pick it up. That's from pages 25, 26, if you already have the book and you want to check it out. Okay, well, there's a lot more we can say about apocalyptic literature for sure, but one thing that I think it's important to remember and to know about apocalyptic is that it relies heavily on symbolic communication. 
In other words, it, it uses symbols to convey truth. It's not meant to be taken literally in the sense that it's meant to be taken woodenly. Okay, so let me give you an example. When John uses the symbolism of beasts to describe the Roman imperial system, he's not saying that Rome was like literally a monster. Okay, no, that's just a symbol for how Rome acted beastly. The Roman system was monstrous. And, and likewise, when John depicts Jesus as a lamb, he's not suggesting that Jesus is literally a four-footed farm animal, okay? No, no, no. The, the image of lamb is symbolic. For starters, it points, it points us back to the Old Testament. The image of, a, of Jesus as a slain lamb, it, it points us back to those Old Testament stories. Um, and and, uh, and that's, that's, that link to the Old Testament is super important here. But the image of Jesus as a slain lamb also holds imaginative value by by pushing the reader to feel the story okay here's let me explain that a little bit the protagonist you know the slain lamb the protagonist in the story of revelation comes face to face with the vicious dragon and its beasts and i think one might be tempted to ask okay how could a slain lamb ever conquer those monsters john's visions reveal something very important in this respect about the crucifixion of jesus the slain lamb conquers the beasts, not in spite of his weakness, but through his weakness. In fact, the message is that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of the enemies of God. And if you are familiar, I think, with the, if you're familiar with the way the story ends, the humorous fact is that there is no final battle, right? The dragon and the beasts, they're easily conquered by the slain lamb. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus is the source of victory. I mean, think about how that feels to read that if you are in a situation like the seven churches who are being persecuted, or at least have the threats of persecution always at your neck. This message will resonate. You can feel it through these images. These, these, uh, these images are, are illustrations. They, they, they're, they're almost like verbal poetry. Well, they're, they're, vo they're, um, they're poetry that evokes images that, that the readers can enter into, okay? That the power of symbols, the power of symbolism, the power of apocalyptic, okay? And, and I, just, I just use these, these, these as examples of the power of that, that symbolic literature, such as Revelation has, right? I mean, symbols are, are the means by which important truths are communicated. If you don't get that, you're not going to get Revelation. You're, gonna, you're not going to understand it. Okay, and in fact, I mean, just, let me just stop here for a moment. Don't take my word for this, right? I mean, I'm, this isn't Matt's idea here, okay? Because Revelation actually tells us quite explicitly that its message is communicated through symbols. So, for example, get your Bible and pull, pull out um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, let me read it. I'm, I'm going to read it from the New Revised Standard Version. Okay, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Okay. In that verse, the words, he made known, is a translation of the Greek word, semion. Okay. This word, semion, it means sign or symbol. Okay. And we actually get our word semiotics from it, which is the branch of philosophy that studies the symbolic nature and essence of language. Okay. So, so anyway, my, my point here is to show that according to its own testimony, Revelation says, Revelation itself says, that the revelatory message it communicates is communicated through signs and symbols. Okay, this is something that, again, Craig Keener often points out, and 
go, go check out his commentary on, on, on this verse. It's a very important point. Again, this is not Matt's idea, okay? It's not David De Silva's idea. This is what the text is saying, and we need to really pay attention to what the text is saying here. So, so here's my point in all of this. One mistake modern readers make when they read Revelation is that they forget that it's an apocalypse, or, or maybe they're just not aware that it's an apocalypse. Okay, and again, by apocalypse, we mean that Revelation is a text that reveals reality in a highly symbolic way. It reveals unseen reality in a highly symbolic way. And, and when, we've, when we forget that Revelation communicates truth through signs, symbols, metaphors, and vivid imagery, when we forget that, we end up interpreting things perhaps too woodenly, and we, we get our interpretations off on the wrong foot. Okay, so, so I'm actually convinced that one way to prepare ourselves for reading a text like Revelation is to spend a lot of time reading poetry. Okay, poetry, as you know, it, it depends on metaphor. It often depends on metaphor and all sorts of other literary devices. And, and, and two, just, just, remember, just remember how indebted Revelation is to Old Testament prophets who made it a habit of writing poetry, okay? So, so many Old Testament prophetic texts depend on poetic devices. You know, personification, metaphor, all of, you know, you gotta, you gotta be familiar with all those things. Okay, so, so those Old Testament prophets depend on those poetic devices, so don't be surprised when you read a text like Revelation, okay, and it's doing some similar things. It's heavily dependent on the Old Testament, which those Old Testament prophets were heavily dependent on using poetic devices to communicate truth. All right, that's, that's how the prophets worked. Okay, now speaking of prophecy and prophets, I want to turn our attention to a third common mistake that people make when they read Revelation. Because Revelation describes itself as a prophecy, a lot of modern readers think that Revelation must therefore be all about the future. And I, I want to propose that this is a wrong way to look at Revelation and it's a wrong way to think about prophecy. Hey everyone, let's pause our conversation for just a moment because I want to share with you about some new features I'm offering. If you find this podcast encouraging, if you find it to be a good resource for your study of scripture, consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it will help support the podcast. There are various tiers of support starting at just $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to be part of the launch team for my latest book. Other levels of support will get you access to early drafts of my books, articles, and research that I'm doing. You also have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we will take deep dives into all sorts of biblical and theological subjects. You can even sign up to be a voting member of episode topics, as well as enter into cool monthly book giveaways. Visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. A Patreon membership supports my ministry and it really helps me do what I do. I cherish your support. So if you would, consider becoming part of the Bible Unmuted community. If we take a look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, we read these words. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. At this point, a lot of people get sidetracked by a misunderstanding about how to interpret Revelation as a prophecy. 
It's that word prophecy that that we get messed up on sometimes. The, the, the reasoning goes that since Revelation describes itself as a prophecy, then it must be a book all about the future. I mean, after all, that's what prophecy is all about, right? I mean, if it's a prophecy, then it must be some sort of play-by-play account of future events. I think this is a wrong way to think about it. Prophecy in scripture is not always about predicting something. You cannot reduce prophecy, biblical prophecy, down to forecasting events, future events. You just can't do it. And, and when modern people think about the word prophecy, that's exactly what they tend to think, though. I mean, the mental images, uh, if, if, the, the mental images of words like prophet or prophecy, when you hear those words, sometimes the images that pop into your head are like Nostradamus or crystal balls or some such. But again, that's not how ancient Jews would have thought about prophecy. Um, many, many biblical scholars describe biblical prophecy as not so much like foretelling, but about forthtelling. Okay. In other words, it's not, in other words, it's not about predicting things, but preaching things. And this would make sense of a text like Revelation. And, and just as I, as I discussed a moment ago, um, and have been talking about the past, uh, this, this episode and the last episode, Revelation is a letter and it is an apocalypse. So, so let's think about it. As an apocalypse, it seeks to unveil the truth of reality. And as a letter, it, it seeks to unveil the truth about reality to its original first century audience. And as a prophecy, it has to function in accordance with those two things too. I mean, if it was all about predicting events of the far distant future, there would have been very little relevance for its original readers, okay? But as a letter, it has to have relevance for its original readers, okay? So so revelation as a letter, as an apocalypse, as a prophecy, it it has to function um, consistently with each other. Like all those three things, letter, apocalypse, and prophecy, they have to function together. And, and here's the thing. If we reduce prophecy down to just being about prediction, it won't function together. It won't wo- work well together uh, with Revelation being a letter and an apocalypse. Okay. And, and the good news is that we don't have to think of Revelation as being all about the future. That's because the Jewish idea of prophecy is not all about prediction. And I can prove it. I often say that if you want to learn how to interpret scripture, then you should follow the examples set by the biblical authors themselves. And I think the same thing applies here. If we want to understand how prophecy works, we should look to biblical authors who worked with prophetic texts. I mean, the biblical authors talked a lot about prophecy. They read the Old Testament prophets. So so let's take a deep dive into that. Let's look at how a gospel writer like St. Matthew interprets Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, in his gospel, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. In Matthew chapter 2, we read how Herod wants to kill Jesus. And so Joseph is visited by an angel and told to take Mary and Jesus and flee for safety uh, in the land of Egypt. Once Herod dies, Jesus and his family are able to leave Egypt and come back home. You know the story pretty well. Okay, well, at that, at that scene in, in chapter 2, verse 15, Matthew states that, quote, This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Quote, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Okay. Notice the language of fulfillment. Matthew thinks that Jesus' trip to and his return from Egypt is a fulfillment of Hosea's prophetic text, which said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Okay. Now, when you go back and you look at the context of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see immediately that Hosea is not at all predicting the future. He's not predicting anything, in fact. 
Instead, he seems to be reflecting on the past. He's reflecting on the original Exodus event when the nation of Israel left Egypt. And for Hosea, from, from that time on, for Hosea, God was with Israel as a father is to a son. In the Exodus story, if you go back, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, you'll see how Israel is called God's son. Okay. And I think you can see why this observation is important for our study of Revelation. For Second Temple Jews like Matthew, a prophecy cannot be reduced down to just a prediction fulfillment scheme. It's not just about predicting the future. If you make biblical prophecy to be all about predicting the future, then you're going to hit some snags along the way. I mean, you're not going to be able to make sense of texts like Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Because Matthew thinks Hosea's, Hosea's prophecy is fulfilled, even though Hosea was not predicting anything. Okay, So, in other words, prof, the Old Testament prophetic word has to function in a way other than simply the prophet predicting the future. It has to. Okay, And so what Matthew is doing in that text is he's, he, he sees Jesus as a reenactment of the story of Israel. For, for Matthew, Jesus is a, is a sort of interpretive lens that allows him to see scripture as one big story, a story that is all about the people of God. And, and Jesus unveils the Old Testament in this sense. I mean, in, in, a, in a very real sense, Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the apocalypse, okay? He's a divine apocalypse, divine unveiling. And for Matthew, uh, the people of God, Israel, for Matthew, Israel... The story of Israel is embodied in the Messiah, okay? Isaiah's servant has finally arrived, and that servant is someone who will rescue wayward Israel because the servant is himself Israel, the true Israel. He has the ability to rescue everyone. And by the way, if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham, Abraham at covenant, all of this makes sense because Abraham was promised that his family would rescue the world. And, and that's what Jesus has done. I mean, he is the true Israel who can rescue the entire world, including wayward Israel. And Matthew sees all that because Matthew knows Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, so for Matthew, Hosea's story of Israel's exodus from Egypt is like a symbolic world that gives narrative shape to the story of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not some individual Palestinian prophet doing his own thing. No, 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 no. He's continuing and fulfilling the ongoing story of Israel. He is the story of Israel. In him, Israel's story is enacted. It is fulfilled. And in this sense, Jesus himself is the divine revelation, like I said a moment ago. He's the unveiling of the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And I think revelation as a prophecy, uh, yeah, revelation is a prophecy in, in the same way, in, the, in much the same way that Hosea was for Matthew. Okay, revelation is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The, the text of Revelation is all about Jesus. It unveils the truth about Jesus. And, and you'll, you'll find predictions in Revelation, such as the return of Jesus. But that doesn't mean you can reduce everything in Revelation down to just predicting the future. Again, it's a lot like Hosea is for Matthew. As a prophecy, it is a symbolic world, a story that, that if we have ears to hear, it will give narrative shape to followers of Jesus wherever they might be. Okay, And as a prophecy... I think Revelation invites prayerful meditation and careful application, okay? As Christians, think, think about it like this. As Christians, we are the body of Christ, and we are therefore part of a much bigger story. Ours is a story of navigating life in a world dominated by beastly realities. Revelation as a prophetic apocalypse 
sheds light. It sheds light on our lives as followers of the Lamb, showing us how to speak truth in our world. It shows us how to foretell God's word in our context. And Revelation helps us find hope in our here and in our now by reminding us that the way of the Lamb is the way that conquers every beast. And so Revelation's prophecies become for us a story to be fleshed out as we follow the ways of Jesus. Revelation shows us how the church today can be prophetic to its world, okay? And, and just like Jesus, just, just how Jesus embodied the story of Israel in his life and ministry, so likewise, we are called to embody Christ in our lives and our ministries. We are called the body of Christ and we are to embody his story in our stories, okay? And as we do, we fulfill, we keep the prophetic text of Revelation. It's, it's in that sense that Revelation is a prophecy, I mean, it contains all the other stuff too. There are predictive elements, but I think it's primarily in that sense of us living out the story of Jesus in our own stories that we fulfill and we follow the prophecy of the prophecy that is revelation. Okay. We embody the story of Jesus, right? And like Jesus, uh, think of it like this. We embody the story of Jesus, like Jesus embodied the story of Israel for Matthew. And, and therefore fulfilled the prophetic text of Hosea. And, and, and Paul says that, you know, in Romans, he says that as Christians, we're grafted into that Jewish story. And so we, in Christ, embody the story of Israel, okay? And, and we, we fulfill the story of Israel by virtue of us being in Christ, okay? That's how prophecy works. We're fulfilling those prophecies, I guess you might say. Okay, I think you can see how all of this may be relevant. Okay, so I'm not suggesting, again, I'm not suggesting that Revelation contains no future predictions. Not for a long shot, in fact. I mean, I have, I have a partially futurist perspective of Revelation. I think Revelation predicts the physical bodily return of Jesus, for example. Okay, and that hasn't happened yet. So it's a future prediction. I don't deny that there are future predictions. What I do think is that Revelation cannot be reduced down to just a bunch of future predictions. And I don't think that just because it calls itself a prophecy, that it's a book all about, all about the future, you know, for the reasons I mentioned ago. That's, that, it's not in that sense that, that it is a prophecy, okay? At least not ultimately so. So in my eschatology book that it comes out, like I said, uh, sometime early 2024, I go into a lot more details. I give some more examples and so on, right? But, and, and trust me, I mean, in the future, I'll be talking a lot more about this topic as, as time goes on. Uh, I'm making a prediction, okay? <laughs> um, but for now, though, I'm just tossing out these issues in an overview sort of way, sort of a introductory sort of way. <laughs> Okay, so let's recap everything that we've talked about in the last episode and, and in this episode. So there are three common mistakes that people make when they read Revelation. The first mistake is that people often forget that it's a letter. Okay, that was last week's episode. Talked a little bit about it today. But you have to take it into account. It just The fact that Revelation is a letter, you know, that it's a, an epistolary genre of a letter, I mean, a genre of a, of a writing, that's just part of its literary context. Okay, interpretation 101 is that context is king, and so you got to take into account Revelation's literary context. Okay, the second thing is that we can't forget that Revelation is an apocalypse. Okay, you just can't forget it. You got you gotta, you gotta pay very close attention to um, uh, the apocalyptic character of Revelation if you want to understand it. Okay, and, and remember, apocalypse doesn't mean destruction. It doesn't mean story of destruction. It simply means uh, it simply means unveiling hidden truths of a hidden reality, okay? Or as Mike Heiser would say, 
the unseen realm. Okay, it, it lets us take a peek behind the unseen realm, or into the unseen realm. And in an apocalypse, uh, by design, it makes visible that realm into the, into our world, our contexts. And, and, and an apocalypse tells the rest of the story. Okay, that's a good way to think of it. And it, and it employs symbols as it tells that story. And it expects readers to interpret those symbols appropriately. Okay. Now, the third thing is that we, we need to never forget that Revelation is a prophecy. And we can't forget that uh, a prophecy, um, well, we cannot, let me put it this way. We, we have to understand what a prophecy is and we have to understand what it is not. Okay. Biblical prophecy is not all about predicting the future. You know, prophets have been known for predicting the future, but the ministry of a prophet cannot be reduced down to just that. Okay, I mean, what would be the point of just always predicting the future? What relevance would that have for people living in the, in the present world? Okay, okay. Again, prophets are not busy always foretelling, but forthtelling. And I think if we keep all these things in mind, I'm confident that, that your reading of Revelation will go from a black and white 2D to a 3D high definition visual image. Okay, the image will become clearer. It will become sharper. And it will become much more easier to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the end of today's episode. And thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends.